So this is um, a lecture about the most uh, familiar of all ancient authors, I think. The name Aesop is probably the most famous author of antiquity, but very few people actually know anything about who he was. He's one of the ancient Greek authors who has entered our language at such a deep level that most of the time we don't even know when we're citing him. We've all used the phrase to take the lion's share, but how many of us realise that this is the moral drawn by the Aesopic fable entitled The Lion, the Fox and the Ass? These three animals went hunting together. The ass divided the spoils into three identical piles. So the lion ate him and asked the fox to divide the food again. The fox gave the lion nearly all of the food, took only a tiny little portion for himself. The lion took the lion's share, but the fox at least stayed alive. Or take the proverb, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. The original source for this is the fable of the hawk and the nightingale. And this is actually the earliest Aesopic fable attested in ancient Greek in the 8th century BC in Hesiod. A nightingale caught in the talons of a hawk begged for his life, saying the hawk should release him because if he spent time hunting larger birds, he'd actually better slake his appetite. Good argument. But the hawk, before eating him, grimly retorted, I would be crazy if I let go a bird already in my hand for the sake of other birds I can't see. Now, many short phrases in our language are abbreviations of the morals of one of Aesop's fables. When we say, give him an inch and he'll take a mile, we're abbreviating the moral of the fable, the trees and the woodman. A man came into a wood one day with an axe in his hand and begged all the trees to give him a little branch which he needed for a particular purpose. The trees were good-natured and gave him one of their branches. What did the man do but fix it into his axe head, thus making a tool with which he cut down tree after tree? Then the trees saw how foolish they'd been giving their enemy the means of destroying themselves. They'd given him an inch, and he'd taken a mile. And the proverb, handsome is as handsome does, comes directly from Aesop's fable, where a father comforts his clever but plain daughter when she compares herself unfavourably with her handsome brother. Or the phrase, blowing hot and cold. Now, this has slightly changed its sense, but still derives from the fable about the satyr and the traveller. So, a man met a satyr in the forest and made friends with him. But one cold winter evening, the satyr saw the man blow on his fingers. Why do you do that? asked the satyr. To warm my hands, the man replied. At his home, the man prepared them two bowls of porridge. These he placed steaming hot on the table. But much to the satyr's surprise, the man began to blow into his bowl of porridge. Why do you do that? he asked. To cool my porridge, said the man. The satyr sprang hurriedly to his feet and made for the door. Goodbye, he said. I've seen enough. A fellow that blows hot and cold in the same breath can't be friends with me. And whenever we say sour grapes, we mean that someone who's failed to acquire or achieve something they desired is now criticising the object of desire. If the fox can't get hold of the grapes, he needs psychologically to imagine that they're sour anyway. 
And here is the exquisite page illustrating this famous fable in my own favourite edition of Aesop. Walter Crane's baby's own Aesop, brought out in 1887 by Frederick Warne, a British company, company already very famous for children's books. And my previous three slides also reproduced Crane's Aesopic illustrations. In this lecture, I'm going to use Crane's edition of the fables as a launching pad from which to conduct a tour of the cultural history of Aesop's famous stories. Who was Aesop? What are his fables? Are they records of the stories that slaves told each other in antiquity? Did they have a political message in antiquity? Were they used, as they are today, to introduce very small children to reading books? And... Have they been used culturally and politically in more recent times? Now, Crane wasn't just a brilliant graphic designer, as you can see, and a chromolithographer, chromo but an ardent socialist, close friend of William Morris and Edward Byrne-Jones, and a trade union supporter. He spent his childhood in Torquay, where he learned painting from his father, and he always enjoyed portraying animals. His father spotted his son talent and in 1859 apprenticed him to W.J. Linton, a renowned wood engraver at his workshop just off the Strand. Crane, in due course, made his own name by contributing illustrations to a series of books called Toy Books, which contained nursery rhymes and fairy tales. And he loved these because of their opportunities to portray beasts in strange settings and often behaving and talking like animals, sorry, like humans. Think Beauty and the Beast, exquisite picture, or Little Red Riding Hood and the Wolf. From 1873, he lived with his wife in Shepherd's Book, Bush and socialised with figures in the ascetic movement. Now, he was already very sympathetic to radical causes, both because that was the political outlook of his beloved master, W.J. Linton, but also because he was very fired up by the Paris Commune of 1871. And he became the artist of the socialist cause, designing posters, trade union banners, cartoons and newspaper headings, adapting the emblematic figures of his paintings to socialist themes. This, his, uh, the Triumph of Labour, drawn for May Day 1891 and reproduced in his book Cartoons for the Cause, is a Renaissance-style triumphal procession rendered in the gritty texture of wood engraving and filled with sturdy workers, bullock carts and banners. Morris said, William Morris said it was the best thing that Crane had ever done. And in the 1880s, he also became very active in the politics of art. Both he and Mary Crane, his wife, loved dressing up constantly and they threw enormous dressing up parties for their son Lionel's 21st birthday in Shepherd's Bush, they invited 700 people in fancy dress. Crane dressed up as a crane and Mary as an enormous sunflower. Now, his baby's own Aesop used short, rhymed, limerick stanza versions of the famous prose fables of the ancient Greek storyteller Aesop. Very clever to use a, a demotic English language verse form. In his preface, he tells us that he produced his version of the tales from a manuscript actually lent him by Linton. But Crane says, I've added a touch here and there. It's a collaboration. The title page proudly reports 
that the rhyming fables come with portable morals. And these morals are usually printed in capitals in the white space surrounding the rhyme, which is itself embedded within the page's uh, picture. But since both Linton and Crane were socialists, many of the morals have identifiably political subtexts. Many versions of these morals, including those in the old and medieval manuscripts of Aesop, add explicit morals to the fables to make sure that the reader or the listener gets the point. And as the fables changed in different manuscripts and printed editions, so did the morals, some dramatically. Take, for example, the cock and the pearl, the upper one here. A cock scratching for food in a barnyard finds a pearl. He looks at it and tosses it away. In many versions, the cock is praised by the moralist for seeing ornaments as vain and fundamentally useless, especially if what you actually need is food to sustain your life. But one of the ancient sources, who's called Phaedrus, an important Latin fable writer who adapted Aesop to his own day, criticises the cock for not being able to recognise value when he saw it. Phaedrus humorously suggested that people who don't like him, Phaedrus, don't realise the worth of his fables are like the cock who can't see the worth of the pearl. But for Crane, the moral is about feeding the hungry poor. If he asks for bread, will you give him a stone? Crane's morals are very pointed. Take fable number 12 in his edition, King Log and King Stork. In this story, when the frogs ask for a king, Job gives them a log, a useful thing for them in their daily lives. But they say they want a living king. Job gives them a stork, which eats them, just to teach them a lesson about being careful what they ask for. Crane's picture shows a recumbent Jove on the upper level, but he's uncrowned and looks more like a sage. The stork, however, has an elaborate crown and a lot hefty chain of office. And the frogs crowd round in different attitudes of excitement and despair. And the limerick reads, the frogs prayed to Jove for a king, not a log, but a livelier thing. Jove sent them a stork who did royal work, for he gobbled them up, did the king. But the emphatic moral which this edition draws is a Republican one. Don't have kings. And a Marxist tinge colours Crane's fable of the farmer's treasure. A dying farmer called his sons to his bedside. He told them not on any account to part with the estate that had belonged in their family for generations. And he said to them, somewhere on the farm is hidden a rich treasure. Spare no energy, leave no spot unturned until you find it. The father died, and the sons set to work digging with all their might, turning up every foot of ground with their spades and going over the whole farm three times. They didn't find any treasure. But at harvest time, they realised that the treasure their father had told them about was the wealth of a bountiful crop. They understood now. But for Crane, the moral of this fable uses vocabulary which makes the fable politically relevant to his own day. Productive labour is the only form of wealth. Now, there have been thousands, not hundreds, of editions of Aesop's fables published since the invention of the printing press in the mid-15th century. Every year, dozens of new versions are published all over the world in almost every language. 
Aesop has penetrated all cultural genres and media. And the animal themes have attracted great artists from Thomas Buick to Milo Winter, who produced gorgeous images for that McNally and Company volume in 1919. A lot of these are classics of design in their own right. But where do all these Aesops, these books, actually get their fables from? Most of them simply adapt to printed editions, but commission a new writer or a new illustrator. Few have much relationship with the ancient Greek sources at all. But there are numerous medieval manuscript collections, almost all of them containing different groups and selections of fables variously expressed, and they all basically came through from the Byzantine Empire. In classical studies, the hero of the study of Aesop was a man called Benjamin Perry, a professor at the University of Illinois from 1924 to 1960. He gathered together as many ancient fables as he possibly could, over 700 in the earliest form they're attested in the ancient sources. A monumental work. They're drawn from all kinds of ancient author, Latin as well as Greek, and a few from sources in other ancient Near Eastern languages, like Babylonian. Perry assigned them each a number. It's called the so-called Perry Index. Uh, so the eagle and the fox is number one, and the grapes is number 15. In 1952, he published the gargantuan landmark study, which will forever be the starting point for any scholars on Aesop, including myself, Aesopica, a series of texts relating to Aesop, or ascribed to him, or closely connected with the literary tradition that bears his name, collected and critically edited, in part from Oriental languages, with a commentary. He also edited the Loeb parallel version of... Um, Phaedrus's, um, uh, of Aesop's fables in later antiquity, Babrius, who wrote in Greek, and Phaedrus, who wrote in Latin. And they're in a very convenient little lobe. And two other books I would recommend. Lloyd W. Daly's translation, Aesop Without Morals, um, 1961, contains a translation of the ancient biography of Aesop, which I'm about to tell you about, and the best starting point that isn't just for a children's book, for adult readers, is Laura Gibbs' Oxford World Classics, Aesop's Fables of 2002. So what were Perry's main sources? The oldest surviving collection of fables under Aesop's name is in a manuscript called the Collectio Augustana. It's extremely old. It's written in the 11th century, and it's housed in the Bavarian State Library, and it has 231 fables. A more influential collection was drawn up in Constantinople, Istanbul, by Byzantine scholar Maximus Planudes in the late 13th century, and that contains 127 fables. And it was published in Milan in 1474, just a decade before the British or English Aesop story was founded at William Caxton's New Press. But what do we actually know about the real Aesop, the author who's cast such a long shadow over the subsequent history of books and global culture? And there is this ancient biography which you can read in Aesop Without Morals by Daly. It exists in several different versions and different manuscripts. They've inspired different portraits, 
uh, visual portraits of varying degrees of sympathy with Aesop. Um, I'm going to summarise now for you the famous edition of the life in English, French and Latin, beautifully illustrated by Francis Barlow and published in London in 1687. Aesop was born into slavery in Phrygia, that's now northwestern Turkey. He was ugly, small and deformed with a hunchback, pointed head, pot belly and swarthy skin. He had a brilliant mind, but was so inarticulate as to be verging on total muteness. This meant he was held fit only for agricultural labour. Two fellow slaves stole and ate some of their master's prized figs and then tried to blame the, pin the blame on Aesop, but he was too clever for them. He asked his master to give them all drinks of warm water and stuck them, his own fingers, down his throat. While he only vomited up clear liquid, the slaves vomited up evidence of the not-yet-digested figs. So they were punished, rightly, instead of Aesop. And this inaugurates Aesop's long career of outwitting slaves and freemen alike in semi-comic episodes, which always underline the dangers of being rude to other people just because they're low status or strange or disagreeable to look at. Next, he acquires the power of fluent speech as a gift from the gods after being kind to two itinerant priests of Artemis. He's purchased by a philosopher named Xanthus. After many episodes where he outsmarts his owner, including the achievement of intimacy with the philosopher's wife, he eventually manoeuvres the philosopher into emancipating him on the island of Samos. He then becomes the Samian sort of chief spokesperson because he's so clever. He helps them respond to King Croesus of Lydia when he sought to deprive them of their freedom and demanded imperial tribute. Aesop offers to go voluntarily to Croesus's court and Croesus is so impressed with his wisdom and courage that he not only grants the Samians freedom from imperial interference but bestows a huge fortune on Aesop as a reward. The Samians in turn make him a freedman. He travelled the world debating with famous philosopher. He came to King Lycoris of Babylon, and after several adventures there in which his brilliant intelligence impressed everyone, he went to King Nectanabo of Egypt. This is partly, I think this is a fictional biography, but it's to explain the fact that the Greeks knew that the Egyptians and Babylonians and Lydians also had similar sorts of fables. Nectanabo of Egypt thought he devised a problem which even Aesop could not solve. He demanded a tower that touched neither heaven nor earth. Now, Aesop solved this quite brilliantly by training eagles to fly while supporting baskets which contained children building toy towers. So we have these uh, amazing baskets in the sky with little children building things out of ancient Lego he returned to Babylon. He succeeded in solving riddles put to him by the cleverest men in the world, invited especially from Heliopolis. And then he decided to go to Greece, where he earned himself an incomparable reputation for wisdom. It was natural he would want to visit Delphi because of the famous oracle of Apollo, reputed never to lie. But the Delphians resented Aesop, seeing him as a rival source of authority. 
They framed him as the thief of a golden goblet. They executed him by throwing him off a precipice. In return for this, the gods inflicted a pestilence on the Delphians, which they had to expiate by erecting a statue of Aesop, which really was there in antiquity. And the leaders of other parts of Greece, along with a battalion of Greek sages, took their revenge by a military assault on Delphi as well. Now, regardless of how much of this amazing life of Aesop is fact and how much fiction, it may well reflect the kind of stories that slaves told each other in antiquity. The hero is a slave who, by just his wits, rises inexorably to the status of wealthy and admired freedman sought out by kings and philosophers. Aesop is the first truly low-class hero in all Greek literature, which usually preferred well-born exemplars. The only other one is actually Jesus Christ in the Greek New Testament. The setting, at least in the first half of his life, is thoroughly low-life and much of the humour sexual or scatological. So what does this tell us about who enjoyed and told the fables in classical antiquity? Where did they come from? In the comedies of Aristophanes, the fables are certainly associated with very badly educated people, both slaves and free, and are discouraged at polite dinner parties. In Aristophanes' comedy Wasps, the lower-class father in Athens, who has to be taught refined manners by his upwardly mobile son, is told on no account to mention Aesop at the symposium in front of guests. And scholars haven't come to any agreement about the ideological import of these fables in antiquity more widely. And this is because so many of the fables are related to the issue of power. The poet Eric Ormsby, acknowledging the massive cultural influence of children's books, wrote a review once of Seth Lehrer's Children's Literature, A Reader's History, from Aesop to Harry Potter, 2008. Ormsby said that to shape the minds of the young through books is to exercise power over the future. And the fables of Aesop, perhaps the most influential children's book of all time, are transparently all about power. A large proportion of the most familiar fables directly address the relationship between beings of disparate power, whether physical or intellectual. The dominant types of moral to be drawn from the fables are these five types. Firstly, that force majeure is inevitable. The hawk is simply bigger and stronger than the nightingale. Lump, <coughs> lump it. That's also the basic meaning, meaning of the wolf and the lamb, the hare and the hound, and the eagle and the jackdaw. Like it or not, they demonstrate it's simply inherent in nature that big, powerful animals beat smaller, weaker ones. A second closely related group underlines the futility of aspiring to things which aren't naturally yours or too good for you. The ant and the grasshoppers, the fox and the grapes. Not dissimilar is the type which suggests that gratitude for what you already have secured is much more sensible than trying to increase your possessions. And a prime example here is the dog and the shadow. A third whole set, while recognising that some entities are naturally more powerful than others, suggests that cunning intelligence can help to even up the balance, most famously in the hare 
and the tortoise. A fourth strategy for dealing with discrepancy in power is a system of reciprocal favours, as in the lion and the mouse, or the bat and the weasels. But there is a corollary of these, as in the gnat and the bull, which shows that small entities can think they're being noticed when they try to build up favours with the great, but, but it may not have been noticed at all. And the fifth and final group is the disturbing set that stresses that different groups are naturally irreconcilable. The jackdaw and the doves, for example. While others suggest that masses, the masses are not effective as individual leaders, especially the mice and the cat or the mice in council. The mice decide at a meeting that a bell must be put on the cat but they failed to decide who should carry out the deed. There were understandably no volunteers. Now, all those moral lessons actually seem to me compatible with the worldview of either rich or poor, free or slave in ancient Mediterranean society. Scholars do agree that the fables reflect at some level their origins as low or popular culture, oral prose stories generated and circulated probably by slaves and lower class individuals in antiquity. And this line of argument can be traced to the ancient Greek writers themselves, like Plato. But scholars radically disagree about how progressive or truly subversive the ideology of the fables is. Many have identified Aesop's fables as the literature of the underdog with a healthy, rebellious and subversive content, all those uh, tortoises sort of eventually beating hares. But Paige Du Bois has argued persuasively that the fables operated in antiquity in a rather reactionary way. She thinks in naturalising what are actually human and social inequalities by comparing them with inherent biological and natural differences between species of animal, they suggest that human inequities are unchallengeable and immutable as well. My own view is that the fables actually work both ways. They are indeed expressions of the terrible class and power tensions that underpinned a deeply hierarchical slave society, but they expressed that tension in ways that spoke with an equally loud voice to people on both sides of the power divide. You can see a slave father telling them to his son to tell him to keep in his place, and not think thoughts above his station, you can also see the king telling his son this in order to prove force majeure. The political ambiguity of the fables is further underlined by the ease with which they've been appropriated by either side in their subsequent reception. There have been countless readings we might call conservative or elitist. These include a whole genre of witty Jacobite highly conservative Aesopic satires. They also include such horrors of Nazi children's literature as Trau keinem Fox auf grüner Heit and keinem Jude bei seinem Eid, Don't Trust a Fox or the Promise of a Jew by Elvira Bauer, which sold 70,000 copies and is horrifyingly sadistic. On the other hand, partly because Aesop and his Roman emulator Phaedrus were said to be slaves themselves, they proved magnetically attracted to radicals and revolutionaries of a much more modern kind, including Walter Crane, 
to whom I shall return at the end of the lecture, and Hugo Gellert, who was a radical Hungarian-American lithographer. And he created a series of incredibly striking images to illustrate Karl Marx's Das Kapital at the height of the Depression in 1934. But he also published a, a topical, updated version of Aesop's fables, as Aesop said so in 1936. You can find it free online, and the uh, images are incredibly beautiful. The workers are all mingled black and white. Uh, it's very passionate uh, civil rights Aesop. Most Aesopic fables are proofs for children, though, which is how most of you probably encountered him, feature talking animals, even though so many of the ancient fables available to us by the manuscript tradition are actually human in their personnel. The usual number selected for children's publication is between 10 and 30, out of all that 700 and something. The English language edition by um, Sally Grindley, which is very good, she is author of the bestsellers and Wake Up Dad. You, if you have little children you read to, you probably encountered those. Um, her version, The Hare and the Tortoise, is not untypical. It contains 18 fables, including the hardcore of favourites, which are never omitted. The Hare and the Tortoise, the Fox and the Grapes, the Lion and the Mouse, the Ants and the Grasshopper, and the Mice in Council. Now, some modern introductions to collections of Aesop's fables allege that they were designed for ancient children. And so modern children who read them are just the latest generation to partake in a tradition of awe-inspiring antiquity. But the evidence that Aesop was a children's author in antiquity is also controversial. Aesop's fables are bound up with the history of teaching literacy. That's true. But liter literacy has not always been something normally or necessarily considered to be acquired exclusively in childhood. That the ancient Greeks and Romans saw Aesop as an author to be read as early um, as infancy just may be implied by an important story in Philostrus's life of Apollonius of Tyana. And this story reports that the art of fable was bestowed on Aesop by Hermes, who's the god of words and communication. Because the hours, the Horai, had told Hermes a fable about a cow when he was just a baby in swaddling clothes. And Hermes gave Aesop the gift, saying, you keep the first thing I learnt myself. Yet, frustratingly, we can't prove that Aesop was part of the curriculum of children until they were rather older, at a stage when class, status, leisure and access to education began to interfere with the picture in the ancient society where literacy was as low as 15 or 20% of the total population. The composition of a fable, a muthos, was certainly the first exercise attempted by middle and upper class male students of rhetoric. And Aesop was important in the advanced school education in the Greek-speaking communities of Hellenistic and Roman ancient Egypt. It is possible that in classical Greece, in the 5th, 4th centuries BC, Aesop was used to teach small children to read. For example, at Athens, where citizens, all citizens, needed to be able at least to decipher basic civic documents. But we lack a clinching piece of evidence that Athenian citizen boys were taught to read with the help of a written collection of fables. 
we don't even know whether a physical collection existed as early as the Golden Age of Athens in the 5th century BC, from which this wonderful dish portrait of Aesop chatting to a dog um, derives. And I do wonder whether there wasn't special pottery for children. <laughs> it's like Beatrix Potter Pots. And it makes you wonder whether this was the children's plate. The earliest example of a fable in Greek literature is that reference to the hawk and nightingale in Hesiod. But Hesiod's poetry dates from at least a century earlier than when Aesop is said to have lived. The first known collection was made by Demetrius, regent of Athens, between 317 and 307 BCE after the Macedonian conquest. But this was probably a repertory of fables designed for consultation by speechmakers. Aristotle said in his rhetoric that it, one fable could be very effective, especially with a popular audience. The question of whether reading Aesop was primarily associated with the distinction between childhood and adulthood or with socio-cultural status depends entirely on one passage in Plato's Phaedo. Socrates, in prison, tells Cabes that he's been whiling away the time by composing poetry. Socrates had first composed a hymn to the god, and then he put into verse the fables of Aesop, which he had access to. The trouble is, we don't know here whether the Greek means he had a copy of the fables in prison, like a Bible in a Mormon hotel, or whether he knew them off by heart and so had access to them in his memory. If that's the case, and I think it is, it might imply that most Athenian men knew Aesop backwards, having learned them in infancy. And that might be backed up by a passage in Aristophanes' Birds, the human who's gone to cloud cuckoo land, complains that the birds are really thick and so undereducated they haven't even read their Aesop. Now, whether Aesop should be imagined as the literature of childhood after the invention of the press, printing press is also academically contested. During the 1470s and 1480s, when Aesop's, uh, volumes of Aesop were published with elaborate illustrations, not only by Caxton, but in Germany and in France, one group is easily identifiable as designed for schoolwork. A Latin book printed between 1512 and 1514 by Winkin de Warda at Westminster is just entitled Aesopus Fabulae Aesopic and Commento in Latin. And this title page woodcut shows a schoolmaster teaching three boys or youths who are seated on a school bench and holding books from which they read. But these boys are not very young, and moreover, they're learning not English, but Latin. So the intended readership of other early printed Aesops in modern vernaculars is far less easy to define. People have learned to read at all ages, especially in cultures with high levels of adult illiteracy, and have always acquired radically different functional le levels of reading ability. So the tropes of social distinction by age and by class in relation to knowledge of Aesop frequently became confused in the rhetoric of later ages. <coughs> Take this beautiful frontispiece engraving to Philippe's 1689 Mythologia Ethica, or Three Centuries of Aesopian Fables in English Prose, done from Aesop, Phaedros, Camerarius, and all the other ancient authors on the subject. 
The image depicts a rural idyll with an Aesopic animals looking on in the background. Chiron, the centaur, who's of course half animal, is teaching the young Achilles. And the implication is that he's teaching him the fables of Aesop in the book. And the Latin inscription beneath the engraving comprises just two verses. Here is seen that virtuous Chiron, the most upright of all the cloud-born ones and teacher of great Achilles. But Achilles in the picture, far from being a small boy or working class, has the stature, appearance and clothing of a very refined young aristocrat. Ever since the first printed editions, Aesop often featured in the biographies of prodigious self-educators who succeeded in learning to read, often in adulthood, and consequently to extract themselves from poverty and obscurity. A teenage French farm boy from Lorraine, by name of Valentin Jamiri Duval, was illiterate until he came across an illustrated edition of the fables. So drawn was he to the visual images that he asked his fellow shepherds to explain the stories and subsequently to teach him to read the book. As a result, he developed an insatiable appetite for reading in adulthood, became librarian to the Duke of Lorraine. That is a true story. At the other end of the social scale, however, the future Edward VI began reading his Latinized Aesop at the age of seven. And a Christmas theatrical entertainment called Aesop's Crow was prepared for his amusement in 1552. And Aesop was even used to teach royal princesses the language appropriate to their agenda and class in late 17th century England, that is French. A fascinating volume by Pierre de Lenay, tutor to Princess Mary, the future Queen Mary, and her sister Anne, published in 1677, includes a telling collection of texts under the title The Princely Way to Teach to the French Tongue. There are extracts from the Bible transposed into dialogue, together with a larger explanation of the French grammar and the choice fables of Aesop in burlesque. French. Now, these last examples underline the question of whether it's even legitimate for us to talk about children's books or children's literature or literature for children as a recognised or recognisable category at all prior to the 18th century. Now, this isn't to say that the fables don't occupy a central place in the history of literature for children when it happened in the late 18th century, because they do. The story actually began with John Locke's Some Thoughts Concerning Education in 1693. This philosopher said the child, every child, had the need for some easy, pleasant book, wherein the entertainment that he finds might draw him on. And he recommended Aesop's fables as the best, which being stories apt to delight and entertain a child, might yet afford useful reflections to a grown man. And Locke here seems to approve of Aesop as the provider of ethical instruction for the very young. But he soon afterwards published a version of a selection of the fables as an example of the ideal text for instruction in Latin. Aesop's fables in English and Latin, interlinearly, for the benefit of those who, not having a master, would learn either of those tongues. So Aesop for Locke was good either for teaching children because he could function as a vehicle 
for ethical examples imparted without tears, or for individuals at any age desirous of learning a second language. But within not much more than a century of his version, Aesop's fables did form the content of what is widely regarded by experts as the first children's book in the fully modern sense. That is, a volume designed to appeal to the imagination of a child and stimulate his or her powers of visualisation. And this famous and wonderful book was William Godwin's Aesop's Fables, Ancient and Modern, adapted for the use of children from between three and eight years of age, which first appeared in 1805 under the pseudonym of Edward Baldwin. Now, Godwin's publishing ventures, and in particular his Aesop, took the discussion of what children should be given to read forward by several strides. He added to Locke's classical literary critical notions of the pleasurable, herdu or dulce, and the useful, the ophelemon or utile, the revolutionary idea that a children's story might just have a different narrative rhythm from that which might appeal to a child. Even more innovative was his desideratum that a book for a child had to stimulate his or her reflective and imaginative capacities. Fables, he wrote, should not be dismissed in a few short lines, but expanded in language suited to the understanding of a child. If we would benefit a child, we must become in part a child ourselves. We must prattle to him. We must expatiate on points. We must introduce quick unexpected turns, which if they are not wit, have the effect of wit to children. Above all, we must make our narrations pictures and render the objects we discourse about visible to the fancy of the learner. So it was through thinking how to rewrite the ancient fables in a more extended way, which stimulated that wonderfully romantic notion of the fancy, that Godwin developed his new style and mode of expression, which was perfectly complemented by exquisite drawings, engravings by William Mulready. In The Dog in the Manger, for example, Godwin's narrative moves at a leisurely pace that allows the reader to see clearly how the roles of the characters are filled out. And the characters themselves, rather than that stern, godly voiceover, draw the moral in the story through what they say and do. Silly dog, says the little boy. If I were as naughty as you, I'd give you nothing to eat. You prevented Papa's horse from eating. There is a plate of meat for you. And remember another time that only naughty dogs and naughty boys and girls keep away from others what they would use themselves. Moreover, Godwin's characters are far more psychologically developed than any previous version of Aesop. Godwin's dog in the manger finally gives in, defeated by hunger. Where in the most popular version before his, Samuel Croxall's of 1722, there was no imaginative response to the dog. The envious, ill-natured cur getting up and snarling at him would not touch him, suffer him to touch it. And in his preface, Godwin explains he'd really tried hard to adapt the material to make it appropriate to the emotional and cognitive needs of children. I have fancied myself, as I wrote, taking the child upon my knee, have expressed them in such language as I would have been likely to employ when I wished to amuse the child and make what I was talking of take hold upon his attention. Godwin's combined household with his second wife, Mary Jane Claremont, contained fewer than five small children. 
So where not in practice have been difficult to find one to put on his knee. I like to think, though, that it was to his beloved daughter by Mary Wollstonecraft, late Mary Shelley, that those fables were first rejigged for the imagination of a child. They even look so alike, don't they? Now, some reviewers objected to the extent of the alterations by Godwin and even to various allegedly anti-Christian implications. But Godwin's Aesop did extremely well, running through nine editions before 1821. And rewriting Aesop fundamentally shaped his views of storytelling for children. Three years later, in 1808, he commissioned and published Charles and Mary Lamb's The Adventures of Ulysses, the first odyssey written specifically for children in mind, and the first odyssey that James Joyce ever read. Indeed, Aesop's fables and the Odyssey have subsequently, those two things, been turned into more children's books than any other ancient text by a very wide margin indeed. They're also the two ancient texts that have been most susceptible to transformation into other media. There were Aesop and Odysseus's animated cartoons by 1950. Uh, they can be watched on television, listened to on audiobooks, and seen in all kinds of theatre. Aesop and Odysseus have arrived on playing cards, porcelain, and postage stamps. But actually, when it comes to the depth of cultural familiarity and the ubiquity, and I've counted editions, Aesop knocks the Homeric Odyssey out of the water on any criterion of assessment, internationally and across time. Aesop has achieved a kind of talismanic status that makes him susceptible even to translation back into dead languages, including ancient Aztec, by a group of scholars based in Germany in 1987. Now, these simple little tales for children, as they're commonly stereotyped, have been regarded, I would love to have longer to tell you all about it, as supremely important by an extraordinary string of famous thinkers, from Hesiod, Democritus, and Socrates, to Martin Luther. He believed that good Protestants should be able to read Aesop and the Bible in their native tongue, and he had a project to translate it all into Demotic German. Malcolm X read them in Charleston State Prison, recommended them to his followers. Writers who turned their pens to rephrasing Aesop include the 12th century poet Marie de France, Aphra Bain, Henry Fielding, Samuel Richardson. Other admirers have included Richard Bentley, William Congreve, John Brajon, Vanbrugh, Charlotte Bronte, and particularly John Stuart Mill, who read Aesop in Greek, as he boasts in his biography when he was still only a little boy, the first Greek author that he conquered. So let me conclude by returning to the unexpected influence of Aesop by Walter Crane on workers' organisations. It feels particularly appropriate, having just come off the picket line and returning to it shortly. Because Walter Crane regularly created designs for posters for radical causes in the labour movement, his baby's own Aesop was scrutinised just as much by trade union organisers and workers' reading groups as by late Victorian and Edwardian children. His illustration for The Man and the Snake, for example, of which the moral is that people should take care, take care not to invite traitors into their homes and trust them too soon, ends up being adapted with quite a different meaning for the banner of the Liverpool Export Branch Dockers 
1892. Crane's socialist undertext to all the fables and to this one implied he often puts the red cap or pilus of the ancient freedman or modern revolutionary on one of the figures in the fables. That did not go unnoticed. Instead of an anonymous father on the Liverpool Dockers banner, we now have a muscular Hercules strangling the twin serpents of capitalism. You probably can't read it, but they're destitution and prostitution. Instead of the snakes sent by his vindictive stepmother, Juno. But you can see how the figure is modelled on that. And lastly, it was almost certainly through Crane's Aesop that illustrations of, I think, in some ways, the most profound of all of Aesop's fables, the bundle of twigs, came to feature on many different trade union banners. This is Crane's version. Again, the red pilluse. This fable says that a father, worn out by quarrels between his sons, asks them each in turn to break a tightly bound bundle of twigs. Each son failed. Then he asked them to break a single twig, a feat which, of course, they easily accomplished. The moral the father draw, drew was that strength lies in unity. And the political relevance is there underscored in the details. And a visit to the People's History Museum in Manchester reminded me that once upon a time, before the very different Roman image of the Fasces, it's very different, has a different origin, was pirated by fascists in the 20th century, artistic representations of twig bundles were once inspiring, esopic and wholesome. When 19th century workers without legal rights banded together against their employers um, and against state legislation to form trade unions, Aesop was one of the very few ancient authors most of them had met. I know that because I've looked at the reading lists of workers' libraries all over Britain, including those in uh, the Miners' Museum in Swansea. Aesop was one of the very few ancient authors most of them had met because his fables were by then commonly used to teach elementary literacy in workers' reading groups. Integrating an illustration of the fable of the twigs into a banner became visual shorthand for unity is strength. As I discovered in the several others, but these are two of the most beautiful, both the 1898 banner of the Watford branch of the workers' union and... That's on the right, that's just a detail. And on the left, the Ashton and Hayden Miners Union. Can you see in the middle? We've got various mining images, but in the middle it's the boys with the twigs. So when they went on marches with lots of other unions, they were linked up by the image of Aesop's <coughs> twigs, because they'd all got it in the detail. Crane's work meant that he indisputably became a figure then with whose wisdom the oppressed underclasses of late Victorian Britain could certainly identify. And I very much hope that the real ancient Aesop would be proud of his legacy. Thank you.